As we uh, stand, let's uh, pray together. Lord, we thank you for your faithfulness and love, which is expressed to us in Jesus Christ, and we praise you for his holy name. We pray, Lord, that today we would learn more about him through your words and draw closer to him in love. Amen. Please sit down, and you'll need Ephesians chapter 2, verse 11 in front of you. Uh, It's page 1174. You may have heard this joke, but there were three friends, a Catholic, an Evangelical, and a Jew. And one day they got into a friendly argument about whose faith is most effective. And they decided to put it to the test by picking on someone to see how quickly they could each convert them to their faith. They didn't want to make it too easy, so uh, the subject that they agreed they would use for their experiment was a grizzly brown bear that they had found in the mountains. So the first to report back was the Catholic. He says, well, I tried to teach him the catechesis, but the bear just looked bored. The next to report back was the evangelical. He said, we baptized him in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, but the bear is just as grisly as he was before. Then the Jew comes back. He walks in, and he's covered in bandages and sticking plaster. His friends look at him and ask, what happened to you? And he says... I don't think I should have started with circumcision. (laughs) So what that bear experienced that first hand was the difference between different religious groups. And in Paul's day, when he was writing to the Ephesians, the divisions were as strong as they are today, if not even stronger. And that's a problem. Because if you remember back to Ephesians chapter 1, when we looked at God's purpose, God's purpose was that we should all be brought together in unity under one head, the one head being Christ. But how was he going to do that if the world that he knew, the world that he lived in, was so divided? Well, last week, we saw from the first part of chapter 2 that the whole process of bringing people back together again begins with individuals being reconciled to God. So in verse 1 of chapter 2, we saw that bad news was once we were dead in our transgressions and our sins. But now, verse 4, we have been made alive with Christ. And next week in chapter 3, we shall see something about the purpose for the church. But before we get that, we need to start looking at the stuff of which the church is made And that's what we see in the second half of chapter 2. And once again, Paul begins with the bad news. And the bad news is that the church, the early church, consisted of people from two very different backgrounds. The Jews, those who were born to Israel, and the Gentiles, who were every other race and nation in the world. And to be honest, they didn't think very much of each other. Just look at verse 11. Therefore, remember that formerly you who are Gentiles by birth and called uncircumcised by those who call themselves the circumcision, that done by the hands of men, remember that at that time you were separate from Christ, excluded from citizenship in Israel, and foreigners to the covenants of the promise, without hope and without God in the world. They don't uh, sound like effective words of insult, do they? You know, get out of here, you uncircumcised, exclamation mark, skull, shaking fist symbol, exclamation mark, as they use in asterisk books. No, get lost, you, 
you circumcise dot, dot, dot. But you get the picture, don't you? The, host the hostility between one group and the other ran very deep. Verse 14 uh, speaks about a barrier, the dividing wall of hostility between the Jews and the Gentiles. And when Paul wrote these words to his Gentile friends in Ephesus, the temple in Jerusalem was still standing. In fact, it would stand for another 10 or 12 years or so uh, before it was finally destroyed by the Romans in AD 70. And at that temple in Jerusalem, there actually was a dividing wall between the Jews and the Gentiles. Jewish men were allowed into the inner court, but Gentiles were kept outside in the outer court. Josephus, the Jewish historian, he describes the sign that they put all the way around that wall, saying in Latin and in Greek, saying, uh, warning the Gentiles to go no further on, on pain of death. And two of these fans, signs have actually been found by archaeologists. It was hardly a friendly greeting. It said, keep out, or let your blood be upon your own head. We could try that at Holy Trinity, couldn't we? we could, it would save on tea and coffee after services, wouldn't it? I mean, um, we wouldn't have to offer them a yellow card. We'd just say, keep out, let your blood be on your own heads. It was like flying stones instead of welcome leaflets. Physical abuse rather than giving new students hot chocolate uh, outside the Union Bar after the Freshers' Week's parties. Paul had every reason to remember this dividing wall with some degree of pain. Because if you remember in Acts 21, Paul had been arrested in Jerusalem and was now writing to the Ephesian church from his prison cell in Rome simply because he had been accused of bringing Gentiles into the temple area and defiling the holy place. And coincidentally, one of those people he was supposed to have brought into the temple was from Ephesus. So the Ephesians probably remembered that incident too. Now, of course, in, in some ways, the Jews were right to look down on the, on the Gentiles. I mean, their pagan religions were nothing to write home about. In fact, according to Paul, the outlook for the Gentiles without Christ was something akin to a weather forecast in September, downright bleak and horrible. Verse 12 says, Remember that you were separate from Christ, excluded from citizenship in heaven, in Israel, foreigners to the covenants of promise, without hope and without God in the world. You once were far away, separate, excluded, foreigners, without hope, without God, far away. The Gentiles were in a right pickle. As the uncircumcised, they were denied that sign that marked a person's belonging to God. They were separate from the Christ. In other words, they were separate from the Messiah. The Jews had been promised a saviour and they looked forward to, to meeting him. And the Gentiles didn't have a saviour. It was Israel who had been chosen to be God's nation, not any of the other many, many Gentile nations. So the Gentiles were excluded from, from this citizenship of being God's people. And they were foreigners to the covenants of the promise. In other words, they knew nothing of this foundational promise that God had made to Abraham, nor any of those individual agreements or covenants made with Isaac, Jacob, Israel, and David. So they knew nothing of God's faithfulness to his people. Therefore, they were without hope for salvation. And most devastatingly of all, they were without God in the world. You see, here was God, who was indeed Lord Almighty over the whole world, over the whole of creation, and yet he had identified himself 
as the God of Abraham, Jacob, and Isaac. Only to Israel had God said, you shall be my people and I will be your God. In short, what the Gentiles needed most was to be reconciled to God. Without Christ, they were dead in their transgressions and sins. It was bad for the Gentiles, but it's not good for the Jews either. Notice how Paul refers to the Jewish circumcision of which they are so proud. In verse 11 he says, their circumcision, brackets, is done in the body by the hands of men. You see, the Jews hadn't got it either. This wasn't the circumcision of the heart at the hands of God that God was looking for. This was circumcision in the body by the hands of men. What was meant to be a sign of God's grace to them had become a hollow, empty ritual. It meant nothing. But it was worse than that because it had actually become a source of their human pride. Similarly, in verse 14, when Paul talks about the dividing wall of hostility, he may well have had that temple wall in mind, but verse 15 goes on to say uh, what needs to happen in order for that wall to be destroyed. He says, the law, with its commandments and regulations, must be abolished. So in a certain way, the commandments, the ritual laws, and the ceremonial regulations, which had started out as a gift from God, have become empty, hollow ceremonies, of humankind. And that also led to pride and self-righteousness and the very type of attitude that wants to keep the Gentiles far away and keep them like that so they would never come near. In short, the Jews may have been nearer to God than the Gentiles, but they also needed to be reconciled to God. Without Christ, they also were dead in their transgressions and sins. And that's the starting point here. That's the starting point for the church. The bad news, if you like. I mean, if you wanted to build an effective, united church, a body of people, would you choose a combination of these two groups as your starting point? You see, it's not that in itself people don't gather together. People do come together, even in this broken world, for all sorts of different reasons. But their gatherings are usually in the form of a club, like-minded people coming together around a common interest. One writer says that by nature, the making of human community is like taking a random collection of buttons of different colours and sorting them so that like goes with like. All the red buttons in one corner, the brass buttons in another, and so on. Like race with like race, class with class, education with education, language with language, and so on. The result is a sort of a natural us-and-them situation. And Rudyard Kipling wrote a poem about that. He said, Mother, father and me, sister and auntie say, people like us are we, and everyone else is they. And they live over the sea, while we live over the way. But would you believe it? They look upon us as only a sort of they. See, left to our own devices, the Jews and the Gentiles were never going to get together to form a church or any other form of gathering. So what could be done? Well, one idea might have been to bring them together by force. In 2008, the British Museum put on an exhibition of those famous uh, terracotta army figures from China, put it on in London. And in that exhibition, they told the fascinating story, the story of the emperor, and I won't be able to say this properly, 
Chin Shi uh, Huang, how's that? <laughs> who had a who had a had a purpose in life similar to God's purpose in Ephesians one. See, he wanted to unify all things under one head, except that that one head wasn't Christ; it was the Emperor Jin Shi Huang himself. In fact, in 219 BC, he claimed that the august divine emperor has unified cosmic power over the universe. In fact, he had only managed to unify China, but you know what these dictators are like, they get a bit carried away. How did he unify China? By using an army of 700,000 slave soldiers and laborers, most of whom died. It was an amazing story of military technology and organizational brilliance and sheer brute force. He recognized that putting the world together was what God's tried to do. And because he had done it in his world of China, he claimed to be God. Unfortunately, he died at the age of 49, poisoned by mercury, which uh, he was contained in a potion that his own doctors had made for him, which was supposed to give him eternal life. It didn't quite work. Jin Shi Huang unified the warring factions of China. He did it by force. But as soon as he died, the whole thing fell apart. It didn't work. Now, he may have been a bit of an extreme case. But there are still countries today, aren't there, where, where uh, leaders and governments and people try to force a particular religion upon the people using violence and intimidation. Even in Spain, where you may go on holidays, Protestants were put in prison, and some were murdered right up to the 1960s. And the Protestant church there only gained legal equal status in the early 1990s. So the use of force is not that far-fetched, not that far from home, is it? Others might have said, no, what you need is not force, but a bit of negotiation, a bit of give and take. After all, they said, surely we all worship the same God in the end. Can't we just pick and mix the best out of, out of each religion? And in a way, that's what some in the early church tried to do when they suggested that Gentile Christians should become circumcised. And and even when church leaders rejected that idea, they were still saying that some of the the new converts should follow some of the Jewish food laws. And in some ways, we're still doing that sort of thing today. So we have the ecumenical movement and the World Council of Churches. And some people even start to question whether doctrine like um, penal substitution is really necessary whoever it just gets in the way of unity, church unity. The Anglican communion is more known for the communion part, bringing people together, than the Anglican part, which contains 39 articles in the Book of Common Prayer. Now, a church formed by negotiation and compromise or, or a bit of force is never going to be anything other than empty, meaningless, and as dead as a church consisting entirely of catechized, baptized, and circumcised grizzly bears. So what is needed then? In a word, what is needed is God's grace. Essentially, the message of this second half of Ephesians 2 is the same as Ephesians 2, verses 1 to 10. There's only one answer to human sin, whether that's the type of human sin that separates us from God or the human sin that separates one another from each other. Human sin can only be solved by the grace of God. And the but that we see in verse 13 signals the arrival of the good news. But now, Paul writes, in Christ Jesus, you who were once were far away have been brought near 
through the blood of Christ. And in verse 14, Christ himself is our peace, who has made the two one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility, by abolishing in his flesh the law of its commandments and regulations. His purpose was to create in himself one new man out of two, thus making peace, and in this one body to reconcile them to God through the cross. You see, it's not the use of force, is it? On the contrary, Christ is our peace. Verse 17 says that he came and he preached peace to those who are far away, the Gentiles. And he preached peace to those who are near, the Jews. So how does the Spirit bring about our conversions? By preaching the peace of Christ to us. And perhaps some of you remember that peace from Christ when you first became a Christian. See, the church is not formed by peace. It is formed, formed by force. It is formed by the preaching of peace. Nor is the church formed by compromise. What Paul describes here is not about the Gentiles taking on the form of the Jews uh, before they can come to Christ. No, the two are made one. Christ's purpose was to create in himself one new humanity out of the two. So this is a new creation, a new people of God. So Christ's church is formed by God's grace. It is formed at the foot of the cross. At the cross, we are reconciled to God and we're reconciled to each other. So if they put their faith in Christ, both Jews and Gentiles can walk past that outer wall, through the inner courts, into the holy place, and pass through the torn and tattered curtain into the holy holies to meet with God. Verse 18 through Christ, we both have access to the Father by one Spirit. See, there's no more lurking around outside God's doors. We might do outside the office of the boss when we want to go in and ask for a raise. There's no more lurking around outside your father's study waiting for the right moment to go in. We have direct access through Christ by one Spirit. And that's why we need to, as a church, keep coming back in our preaching time and time again to, the, to Christ and the cross. One writer put it like this. He said, only the preached word of Christ, the word of grace preached again and again and again, pressed home with passion and engagement, only that word will create God's assembly to rebuild a broken world. So that's what, let's look at what happens when the good news of grace forms the church. Well, firstly, the old barriers between groups become irrelevant. Verse 19, consequently, you are no longer foreigners and aliens, but fellow citizens with God's people and members of God's household. We are all God's people now, says Paul. We're even all members of the same household, of one family. Now, I have three uh, brothers, and we are all completely like chalk and cheese. But we're still brothers, and we always will be. In a sense, it's a pointless activity, isn't it, asking whether we like our brothers and sisters because we don't get any choice about it. In the same way, it's uh, pointless in a way to ask whether we like our brothers and sisters in Christ, those around us in church. We just need to get on with it. Now, if we'd been brought together as a church by force, then we'd have a right to ignore that rather difficult person sitting a few seats so long. Or we'd have a right to get annoyed with that person in our small group. Or think we don't have to befriend that person because they have children. Or, or they don't have children. Or they have a PhD and I'm not very clever. 
or whatever difference out, whatever other difference it is that you happen to perceive. But none of us here have that right, because all of us are here. All of us are under Christ, because we have come together out of God's grace. If we're forgiven by grace, then we must forgive with grace. You see, of Christ, the 30-year-old single Mediterranean Jew, living 2,000 years ago, died for me because he loved me. A 42-year-old married white person with three children. Then I can go out of my way to form relationships with older people, with single people, with people from all nations and backgrounds, and do it because we have a shared experience of God's grace and a shared experience of the one spirit who brings us together. Now I know that's not easy and we all struggle and I have struggled many, many times and are struggling now. But we have to try to do that because verse 21 says that in Christ the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. Now the ancient world was full of temples. There was a temple in Jerusalem, obviously. But in Ephesus there was also the temple of Diana or Artemis, one of the seven wonders of the world at that time. But this wasn't going to be like any one of those temples. This is the holy temple of the Lord, the dwelling in which God lives by his Spirit. So what's the key to the building of this temple? Well, these verses mention two things. The foundation of the apostles and the prophets. See, our temple is founded on the word of God. And Christ Jesus himself is the chief cornerstone. See, it is Christ who holds this whole building true. It's he who ensures that all the individual stones are in the right place, exactly placed in line, in the right position, in relation to each other. And that's how the church is formed. And it's all very well, and we understand that. But we're not there yet, are we? You see, in Holy Trinity, we do have a a wonderful range of ages, from the very young to what I was going to say is the very old. And we have quite a social mix, too, more than you would expect. But we're not completely there yet, are we? But we're not alone in that. Even the early church, contrary to uh, what some people like to say about the early church, they continue to struggle with the relationships between Jew and Gentile, rich and poor, male and female, and so on. But Paul says that we are all being joined together and we are rising as this holy temple. It's a work in progress. And the job won't be complete until we all gather in front of the throne of Jesus Christ in heaven. But in the meantime, let's return again and again to God's foundational word, to Christ and to what he's done for each one of us who know and put our trust in him on the cross. And in that way, we remember that we have all, we have all been saved by God's grace. Let's pray. Lord, when we look at the church, both um, 2,000 years ago and even today, we think what an impossible task to bring all these people with all their diversity, their differences, uh, their different cultures, their different languages together as one body, serving Christ and loving Christ. 
And yet, Lord, you do that by your grace, by bringing us to the foot of the cross where we know that we have been forgiven and therefore we should forgive one another. Help us to do that, Lord, day by day. Amen.